As our ushers uh, bring around note sheets and pencils and Bibles, um, I just wanted to share one more announcement on uh, February 13th. The Super Bowl, which is almost like a national holiday these days, is going to happen. And uh, there is a slight possibility that a Bay Area team might even be in that game. And so uh, our friend Stephen Kessner, deacon of the church, has invited everybody who wants to come to his house that day uh, for a time of fellowship and fun to come and watch the game. Uh, if you'd like to bring a side or some sort of uh, a dish to share with others, um, they would appreciate that. But they always like to prepare some sort of food uh, as the main course for that event. So I believe the game starts at 3.30. So if you've got nowhere else to go and you'd like to come and spend some time with your church family on that Sunday afternoon, uh, that will be February 13th at 3.30, and uh, you're all invited. If you have questions, you can talk to Steve or Trish, and they would be happy to give you more information about that. Well, I hope you arrived in time to hear our call to worship this morning. Those verses in First, or 2 Corinthians chapter 4 describe the, the wonderful power that we have knowing uh, that life here on earth isn't all there is. We may be afflicted by the struggles and the trials that we encounter here in this world, and many of us have had to deal with uh, some very serious and extreme trials in the last couple of years. But we don't have to be bogged down by these things. We don't have to allow them to crush our hearts or our spirits because all of our hope hangs on Jesus' fulfillment of His great promises to us. Uh, a great many things converge together to make our redemption a reality. And if any of those essential ingredients is absent, then the promises that rest upon that reality prove to be empty and are lost. And so it is important for us to understand the depth of the promises that God has given to us upon which our hope rests, and Paul furthers his important closing arguments uh, to the Corinthian church in the first letter here by way of verses 12 through 19 in uh, chapter 15. So we're going to be there this morning. We're going to look at these uh, seven or eight verses and understand uh, the great power there is in a solid, comprehensive understanding of the doctrines upon which our hope is built. So starting in verse 12 of chapter 13, or rather chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer and thank God for the word that he has prepared for us this morning and ask for the Holy Spirit to enlighten us and give us guidance as we navigate the different truths that Paul's laying out for us here today. God, we praise you and we thank you for your grace. You are an amazing God and we would know nothing of your goodness if you had not revealed it to us. So Lord, though the, the law is written on the hearts of men and we are aware of the fact that there is a difference between what is good and what is bad. We know that there is a God and a creator 
It is only by the Holy Spirit that we begin to synthesize those realities and, and recognize the depth and the, the, the importance of redemption in Jesus Christ, our Savior. I pray that you would open our eyes to the depth of sin that besets the human race, God. Help us to understand how powerless we are to overcome that sin apart from your intervention. And Father, even if there is someone here today that does not call upon your name, if there needs to be that Holy Spirit intervention, we would ask that you would accomplish that this morning, even in the midst of this preaching, God. Save people for your glory and raise up the saints that we might attain to the stature of Christ uh, through maturity and growth and edification. We love you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If some in Corinth would attack the general principle of a resurrection, then what they were actually attacking was the validity of the gospel. Verse 12 starts this section off with a question. Paul asks, how can some of you say? And the fact that some were arguing against orthodoxy in Corinth tells us that this is an aberration. It was not the prevailing view that Corinth had. Uh, if it had been, I, I would imagine that this letter that we've been enjoying over the last several months would have sounded a lot more like the letter to the Galatian church where there was a great amount of confusion and adherence to false doctrine. But the fact that it was only a portion of the church that was playing, playing with this wrong idea that the resurrection wasn't real doesn't make it a non-issue uh, that can just be overlooked. It still needs to be addressed, even if only a few of the people in Corinth were buying it. Whenever a key essential doctrine is at stake, it is not responsible for us to allow that errant doctrine to fester and to grow among the body into a greater deception that can have wide-reaching consequences. It has to be addressed. It has to be dealt with. And so Paul addresses the, this portion of the people, this small subset of the Corinthians, and he calls them to give an explanation for the things that they've been saying about the resurrection. Now, as people of the book, we don't have the freedom to just say whatever we want to say. We are a people that proclaim the truth. And so there are boundaries to what we can suggest. There are boundaries to what we can assert. Now, we are not a, a fearful people who choke out opposing ideas and cancel them from consideration. But we are to fiercely defend the truth. We are to respect the truth. And we're to keep a vigilant eye out so that deception is not allowed to get a foothold amongst God's people. And since we have a message to proclaim, we have to be very clear if we are speculating or if we're following a train of thought that might en not end up being biblically supported. If something is wrong, then it must be wrong for biblical reasons. So whatever mental exercises we go through, whatever discussions we have about what may be, that should always lead us back to what is, to what we know. And that is firmly rooted in the Scripture of God. He has revealed Himself to us, and all that we need to know is contained in the pages of Scripture. And so Paul does not simply command them, do not think this way. Instead, he engages the unorthodox idea that there is no resurrection, and he tests it in the fires of biblical refinement. He demands a reasonable explanation as to how this small group of Corinthians could think and speak the way that they were speaking in regards to the doctrine of the resurrection. Now, at the same time, Paul is very confident that those in Corinth who think this way about the resurrection, they really have no such defense. Paul is so thoroughly convinced that the resurrection is a bedrock fundamental issue 
and a reality of the gospel that cannot be denied, that he doesn't wait for some letter in response from Corinth for all the answers to these questions that he's posing. Instead, he walks his friends step by step through the error of their thinking so that they might see the slippery slope that they're inching dangerously close to. Uh, there is a very useful illustration in the scripture that, you, that is used to describe the quality and the purity of our faith and how we should attain to an even more pure understanding of our Savior Jesus Christ. Those who work with precious metals, uh, such as gold and silver, employ a, a very energy-intensive uh, and time-intensive process by which they refine gold or silver into something even more valuable than it already is. The way they do that is by applying intense heat to that precious metal. Uh, once, once those metals reach their melting point, they stop being a solid, they become a liquid, and precious metals are typically very heavy, they're very dense in constitution. And so the gold or the silver will then sink to the lowest portion of the cauldron, and whatever impurities exist within that gold or silver will then slowly make its way up to the surface of that precious metal. A skilled goldsmith or silversmith can then carefully scrape the dross off the surface of that gold, thereby removing the impurities and making the gold or the silver even of greater purity and quality. And so our faith is to be refined in this way. By heat and pressure being applied to our faith, what is not true that we believe, what do we hold to that, that isn't biblical, tends to rise to the surface. It gets exposed. And then as it is exposed, the faithful Christian will, like a goldsmith, scrape it out of their lives. They will disregard that dross. And what remains is a faith that is more pure, that is more rooted in the truth, that is more dependable and faithful to the Lord. And as we're going to see the unbiblical understanding of resurrection that some Corinthian uh, believers were beginning to advocate for cannot withstand the fires of biblical refinement and will rise to the surface as dross to be scraped off, to be discarded, that the true orthodox faith will remain and like gold or silver may be refined to a greater degree of beauty and purity and worth. Before we get into the logical argument, it would be helpful to consider the nature of the false doctrine that was currently uh, making its, its stand there in Corinth. But very little is said about the explanation, which makes sense. Paul's writing to a people that uh, that understand already what they're teaching wrongly. He doesn't, they don't need Paul to explain to them what they believe. Uh, but we should not just charge in with unfounded assumptions about what's being taught there. Did this group believe that the dead simply ceased to exist? That, of course, was the position of the Sadducees, which was another religious group in the time of Christ. So it was not an entirely oddball way of thinking that, that might have infiltrated the church. So too did the Epicurean philosophers of the Roman Empire believe that our life here on earth was the only existence that we will ever really experience. They believe that once you died, your conscience is mitigated and you cease to be. But that might not exactly be the mindset that Paul's battling in Corinth. We get a hint that it is something perhaps different because Paul will later on in this very same chapter address their strange habit of baptizing themselves in the place of those who had died without the opportunity to be baptized. We see no evidence that this was a widely accepted Christian practice or that it is commanded anywhere in Scripture, but that strange exercise of baptizing for the dead might indicate 
that this small group within Corinth that didn't believe in the resurrection might have actually believed in an afterlife. They might have believed that the soul of a Christian will go on to exist, but that there is no connection to a physical body after this earthly body meets its demise. They would go on simply to some kind of non-material reality. And if we really think about it, that is not too far removed from some of the ways that average Christians of today think about heaven. Heaven is often thought about in this esoteric way where people fly around like cherubs and play their harps and uh, enjoy the beauties of God, but it, it, it doesn't always root it in a physical existence as it should be. Don't be confused, Christian. Eternal life will be soul and body in its nature. Jesus prepares a place for us, doesn't he? The scripture tells us that in my Father's house there are many mansions. A spirit doesn't need a room in a mansion, and yet Jesus is preparing a place for us. We, we learn that Jesus is preparing a great wedding feast, a consummation where we, whereby we will sit at the table with our God and feast with him. To feast requires a physical presence, a, a, a bodily reality. The picture of the new heavens and the new earth are physical to us. When we read in Revelation about the wonders of the new heavens and the new earth, we read dimensions and we, we think about materials and, and there are senses that uh, the Apostle John is, is made privy to, that he tries to communicate to us, that bring us to a sense of awe and wonder about what we will one day see and smell and taste and experience. More importantly, the hope of our salvation hinges on the physical, not just on the spiritual resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when Thomas, uh, the apostle, declared that he would not believe that Jesus had risen until he could physically place his hands into the holes that were made in Jesus' hands and into the hole in his side. There was something very significant about that. And Paul's about to lay out that significance here for us in chapter 15. So verse 13, Paul wants them to consider the scope of what they are saying when they say that there is no resurrection. The argument that the apostle is, is building here is actually a very technical, well-thought-out, logical treatise. And it works from the general to the specific. In other words, he's saying, if you generally throw out the idea of a physical resurrection, then there are some specific things that are going to flow from that. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ is not raised. And if Christ is not raised, that has implications too. If Christ is not raised, that means our mission and even your faith is empty. Most of us, when we were kids... Uh, from time to time, would have to visit a family member who didn't have any kids. How many of you remember going over to an aunt or an uncle's house or somebody in the family that never got married or never, just ne chose to never have children? And when you're a little kid, it's almost like a, a crucible through which you have to run. You've got to spend several hours in this home that is not childproofed, and you've got to find a way to keep your like two-second attention span occupied in a place that has no kids and therefore no toys. But you probably, at one point or another, uh, rummaging through what that adult that has no kids did have, found a box of dominoes, right? Because adults play dominoes. And so maybe in a revelation, you found a way to occupy your time by taking those dominoes and not actually playing that grown-up game of dominoes, but setting those dominoes up on their thin edge. You set them up in such a way that the top of the domino 
is apart from the base of the domino, but not so far so that when it falls, it's going to hit that domino at a key spot and cause the next one to tumble. And if you set them up just right, if you get them in this perfect row, spaced just evenly enough, that hitting one domino will cause all of the dominoes that are lined up after it to topple. And uh, few things bring more joy to a child's heart than making an organized mess. So that is part of the, the wonder of playing dominoes as a kid. But what we're going to see here is that Paul's argument acts in some ways like a game of dominoes. It's, it's not a game. It's not to be laughed at. But if these Corinthians uh, allow the doctrine of the resurrection, which is an essential doctrine, if they allow it to fall, then they're also going to watch other doctrines begin to fall in the wake of that wrong way of thinking. And so the first domino that the Apostle Paul wants to talk about here has to do with Christ's resurrection. If there is no resurrection in general, then moving from general to specific, that must mean that Jesus himself is not resurrected. And we're going to spend most of our time on this point because it is the most fundamental point. If resurrection itself is impossible, then by logical impl implication, it would follow that Jesus, therefore, did not rise on the third day. And this is no small matter to us. Let us consider for a moment all of the terrible trouble we would be in if the body of Jesus was still decomposing in a tomb not far from where the Temple Mount is located in Jerusalem. First of all, there are some things that fall from this doctrine. Jesus said that he would rise. Jesus declared to us that he would die, that he would be put to death, but that would not be the end of his story. On the third day, he would come back to life. So Christ's word, Christ's integrity is at stake in this doctrine of the physical resurrection. John 2, verses 18 through 22 says, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? There was some confusion on their part. They weren't getting his illustration because they thought Jesus said, destroy the temple where they had gathered to worship, the temple in Jerusalem. But Jesus wasn't talking about that. Verse 21. But he, Jesus, was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. A prophet who makes such a bold claim has undeniably opened himself up to public scrutiny. For the test of whether a prophet is truly sent of God is found in whether or not the things they proclaim actually come to pass. And so if we remember back to Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, in chapter 18, the people of God are given this standard by which the people were to judge whether a prophet was truly a prophet sent of God or not. There's no shortage, by the way, in the Old Testament of people spouting off and claiming to speak a word of the Lord who actually got no word from the Lord. And so Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 through 22 says, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. See how great the stakes are here. 
Somebody who says they speak in the name of the Lord, who does not, was to be put to death. The seriousness of that claim to be able to speak with the authority of the living God was no small matter. Verse 21, And if you say in your heart, How may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? Then when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So for Jesus to claim that he was sent of God, it was imperative that he keep the words that he spoke publicly to all. And that would include the resurrection of his body from the grave. So if we don't have a doctrine of the resurrection, then we don't have a Savior we can trust. Because if Jesus did not raise physically, then Jesus lied. Jesus did not speak the truth. And we all know that that's not the case. There was no sin in Christ. So the things that he said would come to pass, without a doubt, have come to pass or are to come to pass. Secondly, Christ made a claim to innocence. John 8, 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? In other words, he's saying, look at my life. My life has been innocent. I have lived according to the law of God. 1 Peter 2, 22, not only does Jesus testify to his own keeping of the commandments, but Peter does here. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. And this was of absolute importance because Jesus was acting as the federal head for the elect of God. He was acting as their important representative. The singular representative of a new covenant between God and man rested upon Jesus Christ. So if Jesus was to initiate a new covenant to supersede the previous covenant, it was critical that he entered into that arrangement without the judgment of sin hanging over himself. If Jesus was to offer himself as a cleansing sacrifice for our sin, if he was going to stand in our place and take our shame and our wickedness upon himself that it might be put to death through crucifixion, then it was crucial that he owed no debt to God himself. Our sins cannot be washed white as snow if the water that we are washing in is hopelessly dirty. So the blood of Christ, the conscience of Christ, had to be absolutely pure. Now with that in mind, an innocent man does not deserve to die. The wages of sin is death. So if Jesus died and, and then does not raise from the dead, if he gives his life publicly like this in exchange for the lives of his elect people, but then three days later he does not rise from the grave, then that would have raised the question about whether Jesus was actually without sin. His resurrection was a victory over sin. It was a triumph over death. And that is why a little later in the same chapter, Paul is going to proclaim the victory that Jesus has won over our sin and over the curse of the grave. He says in verses 54 through 57, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that victory would have been in, in, under incredible scrutiny. It would have been questioned if Christ is not raised from the dead. 
So the resurrection of Jesus speaks to his impeccable holiness, to the righteous life that he lived in fulfillment of the whole law of God. Having never erred, Jesus could walk right into the fires of judgment without being burned. He lives because of his perfect character. To erase the doctrine of resurrection is to bring that mighty truth into question. A third thing we have to take into consideration this morning springs forth from that second factor. I just mentioned that Jesus is the federal head of the new covenant. And as the federal head, what happened to Jesus happens to those who are in the covenant with him according to his representation of his people. So we see this as a principle in the life of Adam, right? Adam is the federal head of all mankind. And so when Adam is, is put to the test and he has this opportunity to obey the Lord and to refuse to eat of the tree in the garden of knowledge of good and evil, and then he fails in that task, you failed with him. I failed with him. Because Christ, as our, or Adam as our representative, was going through that trial and that test on our behalf. And so here we have a different federal head. We have Jesus. And if he does not rise, then that means those who come after him do not rise. There is no hope that we will rise from the dead if he, in fact, does not rise from the dead. So Jesus is not our first federal head. Adam was our first federal head. And we saw how his actions, his lack of faithfulness, resulted in our distance from the Lord God. But through Jesus Christ, the better federal head, the perfect federal head, we now see a closeness to, to the Lord God through Jesus that we could not have won on our own. Because of Adam, we've been implicated in sin and we've received the same penalties that Adam had to bear. We were kicked out of the garden. We, we don't have access to the Lord. We forfeited the comforts of Eden and the tree of eternal life. We've been destined to sin and to taste the disappointment of our own failures in the pattern of the one who failed first, in the pattern of Adam. We must experience death as a result of breaking God's law, just like Adam did. But through this better federal head, we can experience an eternity that is secure through the perfection of Christ's obedience to the law. Jesus, having triumphed over sin and death, has made it possible for his people to put that curse of Adam behind them and to enter into a covenant that is kept and completed not by our righteousness, but by the righteousness of the one who represented us. For those who are in Christ Jesus by faith, we are no longer under the shadow of Adam's curse. Praise be to God. We have left that covenant for a new and better covenant that is free from the entanglements of the first. Because Christ is risen, we have confidence that we have been set free from the fallout of Adam's sin and failure. But all of that is in jeopardy if Jesus did not, in fact, rise from the grave. Do you see how important this doctrine of the resurrection is? How it is an axis upon which so many other truths revolve and rotate. The Corinthians who were playing with this idea that there was no such thing as a resurrection were actually doing damage to themselves. They were shooting themselves in the foot with this doctrine. They were failing to think beyond their expectations and their assumptions. And if they insisted on continuing in that twisted kind of thinking, it would ultimately prove to undo the very hope of their salvation. We'll see how in just a few seconds. Now there are implications by extension as we move from the general 
to the specific, we see more dominoes begin to fall. Domino number two. If there is no resurrection, then the preaching of the apostles was done in vain. It was meaningless. It was pointless. And this is an issue of critical importance and not just because Paul's compelled to defend his own preaching. Preaching, in general, is the primary means by which the gospel is spread throughout the world. All the efforts of the church are fortified by the preaching of the truth. So if the resurrection is false, then the preaching of the apostles, by extension, is corrupted and useless because their preaching was full of the proclamation of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Now let us think about the church today, friends. Is the resurrection so integral to preaching in church today, at least in the Western world? Do preachers put emphasis on the resurrection, on the risen Christ as they should? I would say that maybe they do so around Easter time. But this essential doctrine should not be mentioned only in the spring. It is a bedrock issue that needs to be ever on our minds. It needs to be in our songs. It, it needs to be in our prayers. It needs to be brought to our attention in the taking of the Lord's Supper. And whereas so much preaching today is so focused on making man a more efficient man or a better citizen, I think we would do ourselves a great service by preaching the truth of the resurrection more frequently, that we, we might put our eyes on that incredible and powerful work that God did through the Son, Jesus Christ. Domino number three. If there is no resurrection, then empty also is the Corinthians believing. So if there is no resurrection, then all of the preaching of the, of the apostles is now in question. But it also means that those who believed in that preaching have got to ask themselves, have I believed on the right promises of God? Just a few verses earlier in chapter 15, Paul had made an important statement about the preaching of the apostles. He said in verse 11 in chapter 15, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Paul's drawing attention to the fact that himself and Apollos and other faithful men of God had preached the gospel to them. And the Corinthians had received that good news, that message of truth, and they had believed in it. And it is the belief in that gospel message that gives Paul confidence to call these Corinthians brothers and sisters in Christ. That the preaching that, that the church was founded on was infused with this Strong doctrine of the resurrection. Romans 10, 17 says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. This is part of the reason that we have urged you to, as much as you are able, stay involved with the body of Christ. Be faithful in church. Come and hear this preaching again and again and again, because as you hear the word preached, you're encouraged by it. It stirs your soul up to good works. It clarifies things that might otherwise be cloudy and fuzzy and dim to you. And it brings them into the light so that you can worship a God that you understand with more clarity and with more confidence. And so the preaching of the Word of God brings us to a better love and appreciation of Jesus. Now, if there is no resurrection, then the very faith of the Corinthians is in jeopardy because their faith would therefore be based on a false hope. It would have been based on misled preaching. If the resurrection is not believable, would the Corinthians be left with anything worth 
believing in. It was that hope upon which their salvation was founded. And so there are very crucial implications that have a direct correlation to the believers here in Corinth. But Paul wants to illustrate that when this good doctrine is abandoned, the damage that occurs goes beyond just Corinth. It goes beyond that little local body of believers. Domino number four. If the apostles were preaching lies, then their testimony is void and their words carry no power. Who's to lead this burgeoning church? Who's to, to anchor them in the truth? If they are teaching falsehood, then the church is in jeopardy because there are no men then to anchor them to the word of God. There are no men to testify to this amazing truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. An attack on the resurrection is an attack on the integrity of Paul and it is an attack on the integrity of the other apostles who preach the same message that Paul preaches as each of them has testified to this resurrection of Jesus Christ. Essentially, this is one of those dramatic, are you calling me a liar moments where Paul brings to their attention that, listen, if you keep preaching that there's no resurrection, that's an attack upon me. That's an attack on Barnabas and Apollos and Peter and all the other men who are laboring and striving and sometimes paying for the, the planting of these churches with their own blood and freedom. There are many reasons to be careful about our doctrine, friends. What we believe about God truly matters, and we do not want to be found believing something false about our God. But one aspect of good doctrine that should mean more to us than it probably does, if you believe the wrong things, you're going to testify to the wrong things. And if you testify to the wrong things, you're actually shading the way that people see God. It is a serious matter to be found lying about the nature and the character of Almighty God. Isn't He going to defend His nature and His character against those who would falsely preach a wrong Christ, a wrong gospel? A Christian is saved not just to keep them out of hell, but they are saved so that they can proclaim. They are redeemed to that that initial ideal of bearing the image of God. And so they are saved now and infused with the Holy Spirit that gives them the power and the clarity and the enlightenment to be able to preach the true things of God that have been revealed to them. We will not be able to be, remain silent if the Holy Spirit is alive in us. And that's why 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So if you're a Christian, you are to proclaim the truth of God. That's not just the missionary's role. That's not just the elders of First Family Church's role. That's not just for those who are blessed with the gift of gab and who just naturally like to go out and talk to people. If you are a believer, then your life is a testimony to the power and the reality of the gospel message. So you are to proclaim. Our participation in the Great Commission to which the church is called will continually give us opportunities to describe to others the transformation that our Savior is bringing about in our own lives. So bearing false witness about anyone is a ninth commit, uh, commandment violation. But how much more so is it critical that the things we say about a perfect and holy and good God are, are never twisted and distorted or warping the ways that others view Him? It's so important for us to, to seek out good doctrine because we're going to have to proclaim to the world who the God is that we worship. 
this small faction within the church at Corinth should have been more cautious about their thoughts regarding God. It should have been a warning sign to them that every apostle who had influenced their congregation had been united in their belief that Christ rose from the dead and will indeed rise us up on the final days of judgment. You see, public opinion does not make something right. But when we find ourselves interpreting a text or thinking about a key doctrine in a unique and a, and a novel way, we would do very well to ask ourselves, do respected, level-headed believers think the way that I'm thinking right now? Or is my interpretation actually quite rare? Is it very unusual among the saints? And if it is, then why? Why am I the only one who's believing this? Am, am I the one who is right and all of these trusted brothers wrong? Am I the only Christian who bears the Holy Spirit whose role and responsibilities include leading believers like me into enlightenment and truth? So if you're the only one who thinks a certain way about a passage, be very leery of that interpretation. Think twice about putting your feet down and standing upon that doctrine. There are times when you have to do that, when it is the case, in, a, in at least a local sense. It was the case when Martin Luther, studying the scriptures and having the Spirit revealed to his heart that true justification came through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, by grace alone, that he was willing to stand and say, even though the rest of my compatriots, even though the vast majority of these priests who I'm serving alongside would say that I am wrong, I see the scripture saying that this is right. And so I must stand. And that is why he nailed those 95 theses to the, to the, uh, the, the door of the, the University of Wittenberg's chapel. Because he needed to stand, even if he stood alone, he needed to stand in the truth of the gospel. But nevertheless, you would have to have a very solid and convincing argument based not in your opinions or some far-reaching idea, but based in the scripture in order to take a stance like that. Paul's in the process of proving that these Corinthians, unlike Martin Luther, did not have a sound, justified biblical argument for walking away from the doctrine of the resurrection. So several dominoes have already fallen in this progression, in this logical argument that Paul lays out for us. And yet in verses 16 through 17, Paul doubles back to the most critical root fact that if there is no resurrection, then Jesus himself is not raised. He says in verse 16, For if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So we see a couple more dominoes here flowing from this reality. Domino number five. If there is no resurrection, then your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And here this domino effect is starting to build momentum. It is gaining speed now. And so does the intensity of Paul's argument. The denial of such a fundamental doctrine as the resurrection not only renders the Corinthians' belief empty, since our salvation is founded upon the faith that we have put in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, it's founded on that belief in a sense. The emptiness of our belief would then correlate to an emptiness in regards to our salvation. Our faith would be futile. It would be nothing if Jesus did not rise alive and well on that third day, just as he had declared that he would do. Think about what it means to be still in your sins. A great, a great portion of our understanding of the gospel has to do with 
understanding where we stand positionally in relation to God who made us and who is our judge. Positionally, if I do not have Christ Jesus as my advocate, if I do not have him as my mediator, if he has not stood in my place and taken the punishment of death that I had earned, then my position is still under the wrath of the Lord God. I am in a position where I have earned death and punishment, eternal punishment, and without an advocate, that debt still rests upon me. I am positionally far from the Father. I am not adopted into his family. I am not a citizen of his kingdom. Instead, I am a rebel to that good and holy place. So what we need is to be removed from the wrath of God. We need to be repositioned. And it's not something that we can do ourselves. It's not something where we can just crawl out of or climb out of this terrible situation that we've got ourselves into. Christ's victory over sin and death is the only means by which that positional shift and transition can be accomplished. But if Jesus is not raised, then the grave is victorious over him. And then by extension, the grave is victorious over us. See how critical and important this is, friends. Faith is not itself the power to defeat our sins. And some people talk about faith as if it is some magical substance that we need to acquire in order to achieve our dreams, some kind of spiritual currency that we can use to get what we want from God. If we have enough faith, does God have no choice but to grant us the desires of our heart? You've heard about the word faith movement and how it claims that we make reality become what we want it to be by our mental confidence in what we want. But this is nothing short of self-centered flattery. It's a delusional doctrine, and it is exceedingly dangerous. For even if our positivity and confidence can gain us a few things in this life, it will eventually prove to fall short, leaving us with huge questions asked to why. God will prove us lacking. And how will we handle that when life hits us with a brick wall, when we've been faithful, when we've done the right thing, and nevertheless we are sick? when we have prayed hard and we have looked at the scriptures and nevertheless our loved one passes away, when we have done all in our power to show that Christ is important to us and yet we do not have the finances we need to get by, we are not blessed abundantly the ways that other people are blessed abundantly, what happens then? Paul had to answer that question for himself as he sat in jail cells. The gospel needed to go out and yet he was arrested and he was confined to a small place, a dark place, he was alone isolated from the body of Christ. Was God still God? Was, was his faith too little for the gospel to go out? No, God was achieving all of his ends, even through the suffering of Paul, even through the hardships that believers encounter. The Lord can accomplish his will and his way. So faith is not this, this currency by which we purchase God's favor and get what we want from him. And I know some would, would point to Matthew chapter 17. And they'd say, but pastor, you're, you're overlooking this passage. It says, and when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son for he has seizures and he suffers terribly for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. And then the disciples came to Jesus privately and they said, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith. 
For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a, a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. And so people will point to this passage of Scripture. And they'll say, you know, the secret there, I can see it's faith. I just have to have faith, and then all these mountains that I need to move in my life will be moved. But we have to ask ourselves, what kind of faith has Jesus been urging his disciples to have since the beginning of their time with him? Is it faith in themselves? Or is it faith in the Lord their God? Faith in the will and the good plan of God. Faith in the power, not of themselves, but power of God and the God who cares for us. How does your faith in God increase? It increases the more you know your God and the better you understand what his will is and your heart begins to desire to be conformed to that will. So this doctrine of the resurrection, it has implications not only for the living, but as we're going to see here in the sixth domino, also for the dead. Domino number six, if there is no resurrection, then believers who have died are nothing more than that. They are simply dead. They are gone. As a church, we lost some dear brothers and sisters in the last year or so, haven't we? Uh, we said goodbye to Mike Provencia and Jose Portillo and Joan Bell and Sarah Meehan, some beloved brothers and sisters who we wish could still be here with us. Our brothers and sisters who have gone on to be with the Lord did so with courage. They did so with confidence because they knew that their hope rested not on the things of this world, but on the promises of God. That the first death that impacts the body will have no destructive effect on our souls. To the contrary, the soul will live on entering into a paradise state in the heavens to dwell in the presence of the Savior until such a time as he has determined to return to earth, this time not as a savior, but as the judge, to do away with sin once and for all, to undo creation and to redo it, so that heaven and earth can be one. That second coming will correlate with the restoration of our body to our soul. And those who died before will take on a physical shape again. Yet this time that shape will be fit for the eternity of worship that is our gift and our blessing. Unless this small group in Corinth was right. Because if this small group of Corinthians who are preaching against the resurrection was right, if there is no resurrection of the body, then what do those who face death have to look forward to? If there is no such thing as a resurrection, then their lives are totally over. There's no more joy or hope for them. They are not in the presence of God, but have tragically entered into a state of non-existence. And if there is no resurrection, then that is exactly the kind of empty end to life that every professing Christian has to look forward to as well. If Christ is not raised, then he has not demonstrated the power to overcome our curse. And a person who puts their hope and trust in the promises of someone who has no power or authority has a sadly unfounded faith, a belief without any meaningful foundation or justification. So how should we feel toward a person who thinks like that? We should feel supreme pity towards them. Now, pity is a very pointed word. It is not the same thing as compassion. 
pity is tragic. There is no meaningful hope for relief or restoration in the current state of affairs if there is no resurrection. This person is stuck with the sticky situation that they find themselves in. But the Christian's hope is not founded on baseless optimism. It is founded on the completed work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is indeed keeping every promise. Death is defeated, and we know that because he rose victorious over the grave. It could not keep him down. Christ lived, and he showed himself again and again in the 40 days between the time that he rose from the grave and the time that he ascended into heaven. He made it very clear to his people that he was physically alive and well. He ate a meal with Peter by the shore of the seas of Galilee. He let Thomas put his hand into the holes in his hands, into the physical hole in his side. He appeared to over 500 people as we spoke of just a few weeks back. He showed that death was defeated. And by showing that, he encouraged us with the reality that we will not taste the second death. In fact, how could we face the second death if the first death is not even yet defeated? But praise be to God, he has overcome. There exists today a category of, of people who want to believe in Jesus Christ, but they cannot get themselves to do it if belief in Jesus does not fit into the intellectual categories of the scientific mind. As a consequence of this dilemma, an effort is made to synthesize the salvation and the sacred practice of the Christian faith at the same time stripping of it anything that, of anything that might be considered supernatural or otherwise unexplainable by the commonly accepted law of nature. And so some examples of that. Someone might say that God created the heavens and earth. Yes, I, 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 I will agree with that. But because they are so afraid of scientific revelations of man, they believe in their head that that must only have been possible according to the metaphysical laws that we have been able to observe with our, uh, with our human minds and instruments. There was some kind of a big bang. Well, God was the one who started the big bang, but everything came from this big bang. And then billions of years of evolution has led to the development of different species. And eventually man came out and God started to do his will through man. So you see this synthesis where somebody wants to believe, but because there is such a draw to the scientific community that man has created, that they feel the need to capitulate and, and to lessen some of these radical doctrines that the Christian believes, such as the doctrine of resurrection. Maybe they're willing to believe in a God who heals, but not in one who does so through unexplainable means. He uses only the modern medical advances that have been discovered and put into practice through medical research, through trial, and through testing. So, God did a miracle. He saved that person through chemotherapy, but their mind can't see God just making someone well or, or bringing life where death was certain. In the mind of many of these modern thinkers, Jesus did historically die for their sins, but not because there was an eternal judge who has every right to throw us into hell. No, that would be too radical. And not because we needed a worthy substitute who would willingly bear our shame and conquer both death and the grave, that wouldn't jive with scientific sensibilities. No, the mind that is fearful of being looked down upon by the intellectual, by academia, prefers a Jesus who died to show us that forgiveness is possible so that we will learn to forgive ourselves and leave the guilt and the shame of our sins behind us. 
And when that is done, friends, we have just elevated man to the position of judge and God. What a tragic misconception that the natural heart of sinful man is so eager to believe and to embrace. This counterfeit version of Christianity in an effort to accommodate modern thought has ceased to be Christianity at all. And it is therefore a hopeless counterfeit, one with no real value. Those who put their faith in this kind of timid religious sentiment, they're to be pitied because they have convinced themselves that the God they have invented for themselves is doing them some good, all on the way to an imminent cosmic trial whereby the true supernatural God of the universe will drag all of their deceit into the light and will show them that what they really needed was not to bow the knee to academia and science, but to instead come humbly before the throne of mercy and call upon the name of the resurrected Jesus Christ, who faced the curse of death and overcame it by the way of life again on the third day. Good doctrine matters, brothers and sisters. And if we can see a domino effect of the magnitude that Paul just described simply by removing one small but essential aspect of our doctrine, then we should be humbled to pursue the truth with even more vigor as his followers. Knowledge does not save us. Grace does. But God does not give his grace to a person without also giving them the Holy Spirit by which we can come to know and understand why we believe the things that we believe. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your amazing grace and we are humbled to be drawn near to you right now through your power and through your victory. And so I pray, Lord God, that we would not be content to maintain just a simple surface level understanding of this salvation that is so fantastic and so wonderful. God, let us dive deep into the waters of truth. Help us to develop a, a theology of you that that makes sense, that is defensible by the word. And let us not be led astray by the deception of those who would like to make the gospel something more palatable uh, to the medial mind of man. We love you, Lord God. You are holy and set apart. There's none like you. And so let our praise be founded only upon you and your completed work. And we pray this all in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.